0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, this week, the union representing film, television, and live production crews, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, voted to ratify a new labor agreement with Hollywood producers. The vote was incredibly close, 50.4% in favor and 49.6% opposed. It comes a month after negotiations uh, with producers broke down and union members had voted to go on strike, which prompted talks to resume. The conversation's Russell Subbiano was curious about how the Hawaii chapter of the union voted and how it will be impacted. He sat down with Tui Scanlon, president of IATSE Local 665, to find out more.
1: What's your reaction? What's the reaction here in Hawaii?
2: Well, in Hawaii, we voted pretty strongly in favor of, of ratifying we are one of the twenty three locals that that voted on the area standards agreement. We're everybody else but Hollywood, right? All yeah. of everyone from here to New York and Puerto Rico. And I think generally in Hawaii we're happy that we got to avoid a strike for the most part. I personally am really happy that we avoided a strike and ratified agreement.
1: What was good about the agreement? What were you guys happy with?
2: Well, I think we set out to, you know, create some significant deterrence to the really long days, the really short turnarounds. There are increased meal penalties. So, if they don't break us uh, within a certain time period, mm-hmm. then they they pay higher fines and penalties. Overtime has shifted. So, now it's double time after 12 instead of after 14 on TV shows, which is commensurate with all of the other contracts that we have. Yeah, weekend turnarounds, daily turnarounds, increased benefits. There are diversity, equity, and inclusion in- initiatives. Mm-hmm. So, I think by and large, you know, like if, if we were to look at each individual line item, I don't think those would be strong enough deterrence. For the employers to prevent them from having some some of those super long horrendous days, but I think as a complete package, if you look at it as as a whole document as opposed to individual line items, I think collectively they create a stronger firewall if you will than than had previously been, things like the weekend turnaround i mean it 's huge we've we 've never had that as far as I can remember in my time in this in this local and in this industry
1: unless you 've been on set i don 't think people know that. The crew, they're there hustling pretty much every moment of the day. Even though the actors get all the acclaim, actors are really waiting around most of the time. It's the crew that's constantly hustling to get set up for the next scene. I've been on set before where I've seen PAs come in at the start of the shoot. They'll work their eight hours. Then they'll go home and they'll come back Mm -hmm. because the shoot lasts, you know, like 14, 16 hours. And they'll come back later. It sounds like the new deal kind of helps alleviate some of those lengthy hours.
2: Yeah, I think it does. I think because of the, the financial deterrence um, from, like, invasion of of your turnaround. So after a five-day work week, the employer has to give you a 54-hour turnaround, yeah. which means if they wrap at uh midnight on a friday per se then the earliest they can bring you out without paying an extra penalty would be six o'clock in the morning right they actually have to give you a weekend or they pay a heavier heavier penalty and that seemed to be the the common denominator in the talks right the financial deterrence for us you know folks just wanted a better quality of life right they just wanted to be able to sleep and to be able to see their families which we're gonna have to see we're gonna have to monitor if this if this contract went far enough right the first Meeting between the employers and uh, the union for meal breaks is going to be in February, I believe, just to monitor how, like, the actual real-time effect of some of these deterrents.
1: You know, not every agreement is perfect. What are some of the things that didn't make it into the new contract that you wished would have been there?
2: I mean, that's it's it's easy to say in hindsight that this should have been like that, or you know, one thing should have shifted. But I think overall, the package as it stands helps to prevent you know some of the the significant abuses i think you know rewinding a bit and talking a little bit about what the crew does to make these shows possible yeah. right that everything you see on screen is fantasy right but it's it's built on the backs of of these workers from the folks that bring in the furniture of the scene to the folks that buy the uh the watch that's on your favorite actor's wrist right mm-hmm. to to the lighting, to the, the camera movement, right? And, and all of it as a, a a composite, right? If we do our job right, the audience is taken along for a ride on a story and they, they forget that there are actual people manning this camera. It's not their, their eyes looking at a conversation. It's them looking at it through a, re, a recording that was through a lens that someone else had to clean and maintain, store, and and put into effect.
1: Do you have an idea of how many productions are going on right now? And I think we know NCIS is here, Magnum is filming. Do you know if if uh, we're having some concerts coming back? Are your members starting to get as busy as they were prior to the pandemic?
2: You know, live events are, um, they're, they're a tricky thing. You know, it's, it's like the difference between the 100-meter sprint or the 4x4 four four relay, and the marathon. Both are technically track and field. Both are technically running, right? But they are vastly different in the, the techniques that you use and the training that you do for it. And also that it takes so much more time for live events to really gain all of the momentum that was lost, right? It's, yeah. it's not so much a, a light switch or a faucet that you just turn on. There are scheduling and booking uh, logistical issues that they have to overcome but we're starting to see trickles of live events starting and we're gearing up for for more stuff next year
1: one thing i did want to ask you about things that go on on set in light of the the incident on the set of the rust film where alan mm-hmm. baldwin fired a gun that had a, a live round in it and end up killing the director of photography how did that impact crews here. Did you have to take a look again at your, at your safety measures? Were there meetings to reemphasize the need for, for safety, especially when it comes to firearms on set?
2: I think the first effect was it felt like a loss in the family, like an extended member of the family was lost needlessly and tragically. Mm. Any safety incident, any, any injury and unfortunate death, that's not an isolated incident. It's, it's a perfect storm of many little and big things falling by the wayside. But we certainly did have to hooey up a little bit just to mourn in our own way. Yeah. Even though I didn't personally know Helena Hutchins, I know many that did, and they spoke so highly of her talent and of her skill and her vision. And then it also, zooming out a little bit, remember that this person had a family. Mm-hmm. You know, this this person was someone's child. And so before we really started to look at the things that went wrong, the first thing that that the first reaction that i found at least was the humanitarian like outreach that that they did to that many members of the ia across the alliance reached out and extended their condolences and their support and you know any way that we could that we could support this transition into a deeper dive into the safety protocols but it's it started with the human element and it moved towards us reevaluating and just spot checking, like unfortunately did not occur on the on the set itself yeah. and resulted in that tragic loss of life.
1: I've been on a handful of sets and I've seen nothing but the highest level of professionalism, the highest level of safety. So it's been my experience that the crews here operate professionally, that they operate according to the standards of safety. Have we ever had incidents in the past where people have gotten hurt?
2: You know, they're, they're the every now and again the minor injuries like a yeah. sprained ankle or sprained wrist or yeah. broken bone here or there. But as far as like significant safety drop offs, not in my experience. I can only speak from the amount of time that I've been working. And so far, we've thankfully sent everybody, the majority, the yeah. vast majority of people home uh, in the same shape or better than they showed up in.
1: Right on. Right on. Well, thanks for your time, too. Was there anything else you wanted to share with the public about the contract, about your members?
2: You know, I have to applaud the resilience of our members for sticking through thick and thin and constantly showing up and operating at a high level. You know, it passed by a a slim margin. The Hollywood Basic Agreement passed by even slimmer. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be really important that we mend those rifts because while some folks were not about this contract whatsoever, regardless of of whether or not we disagree on how strong the contract is they are still my kin you know they're still my family and they're still the people that i shed blood sweat and tears across you know the way from we were carrying sandbags together in the jungle we were tying off ropes on the beach and i think that in the at the end of the day if this contract is not enough then we need to move forward basically for for my part at least I was of the mindset that if it gets ratified, so be it, we've got work to do. And if it doesn't get ratified, so be it, we've got work to do. The systemic issues of the, the culture of the film and television industry will not be solved by a single contract negotiation. It's going to take time, and it's going to take effort and, and vigilance on the part of the members and on the part of the leadership and on the part of the employers as well to make sure that we're we're sending people home in the same shape or better than they
1: showed up in. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate Thank you coming you. in.
0: That was Ayatsi Local 665 President Tui Scanlon talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the recently ratified new working contract. The Hawaii International Film Festival is still underway, and the Maui Film Festival just launched. If you're looking for something to do this weekend, HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us in studio to talk about virtual reality versus physical reality <laughs> of these uh, film Both. festivals. Yes. Good morning. You know,
3: let's take a look at it, Catherine, because, this, you know, the landscape's changing out there. Becky Stachetti is the executive director at HIF, the Hawaii International Film Festival, and they're in their fir- 41st run this year. That's a long time. And, of course, their fo- focus is still the same, Asian and Pacific films. You know, they're streaming big time this year. They're showing in theaters as well. That's done on Oahu. But neighbor island venues, you're screening through the weekend and onwards, so you'll be able to get into theaters in 2020. If Hawaii's film festival, saw massive increases in viewership, but they're caught in a bind right now because viewers, right, who knows how many are viewing online, where tickets are really discounted anyways, Taketty says. Um, professional online viewing platforms are really expensive too, she says.
4: You know, if you look at our financial reports, like the, the revenue from the tickets in 2020 is like half of what it was in 2019, even though our audience like, theoretically tripled. It's a tricky balance, but we were able to make up revenue through just additional grants and sponsorships, and and cutting. We had to like cut a lot of positions, and so our staff is doing like three times as much work with half the number of people.
3: Whew! This is a heck of a bridge year. It's
4: been a. Puzzle. I've been working on a strategic plan with a consultant all year to try and figure out like, how do we maintain sustainability in this new world? Because online isn't going to go away anytime soon. We've invested far too many resources that we can reach all these people. But how do we make this work so that we can afford to keep doing it?
3: Oh my just, gosh, right, Catherine. You could just see it. And we love the streaming, and you know, and this is Hawaii's film festival we're talking about here, you know. Monetizing streaming has just proven a tough nut to crack. Stacchetti says nobody knows the future of movie theaters either. And, you know, I mean, there are a lot of things that just are not going to come back the same way. Meanwhile, we're forging forward with stuff we have never done before <laughs> at HIF this year. They started investing in XR, which is all the different types of other media, al- alternative reality, uh, you know, uh, vis- virtual reality. In 2018, because Stacchetti says that is the future of storytelling. Think about it, you know. Uh, it's getting into the digital world beyond The two-dimensional space. There you go. 2019, he sponsored this VR dinner upstairs at Pig and the Lady. And um, the title of the piece was Asians in America. And and the scene, if you've ever been upstairs at Pig and the Lady, long table in the middle. It was kind of, you know, that rough elegance that's up there, wine glasses and these big VR goggles on the table. And so while you're eating... You could also experience, like, going shopping with the chef or experiencing some of the history of the food and so on. And the whole thing is, you know, 3D VR all around you. I have no idea what we ate. (laughs) (laughs) It was fun, though. Uh, You know, it was great. It was one of the great evenings in Honolulu. And Becky says it cost a bundle. So thanks for doing that, HIF. Uh, As far as this coming weekend, HIF 41's XR New Media Weekend, pretty much everything's going to be free, Uh, Nina Lim is HIF's XR programmer. She's been overseeing what we experienced there entering the metaverse. I mean, you know, Facebook's now calling itself meta-platform. So I asked, Nina, what is the metaverse?
5: Um, I think that in general, the industry is finding clarity on what exactly that means. But if you ask me, I would say that it is a future reality that everybody can share that kind of is the evolution of the Internet in bridging the real world with technology in a much more immersive and engaging way. But there's so many endless possibilities of what that looks like. Brianna's Garden is a very moving piece. Uh, Recently won an award for the weekend is going to be located right across the street from Sandbox. It's a community garden by the Surfrider Foundation. Brianna's Garden is an augmented reality piece in honor of Brianna Taylor, uh, made in collaboration with her family. So that'll be a really special one.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is the big e- A- A- XR Week, and they're calling it at the Entrepreneur's Sandbox in Kaka'ako. It's going to be fun. The events unfold there on Saturday, after, they- but they're opening tonight at Box Jelly, 5 o'clock. they got some terrific speakers coming up, so... Uh, if you want to, you really should sign up ahead of time, you know, because then you can get time on those. There are only 10 of the big VR goggles, but the rest of it you'll be able to wander through yourself. At the Entrepreneur's Sandbox, it's a real fun little spot there, just just Eva of the med school in Kaka'ako.
0: Okay, yeah, but uh, signing up for appointments, that's good, so you don't wait in line. Yeah,
3: well, either way, they are taking walk-ups, you know, but I signed up on t- uh, online, and there's one piece that I'm really interested in looking at there. It's uh, called A Life in Peace is the Diary and Letters of Stanley Hayami. So they're going to try to convey this World War II Japanese internment experience in VR. Oh. and they're, But they're, that's only just a few minutes long. Each segment is just a few minutes, and they put them together in packages. When you sign up for a time, you'll see several at once. And, and uh, there are still spaces available.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's great. They're, they're trying new things, still trying to work out the quirks with the online <laughs> And it's free, you know, yeah. the
3: this virtual reality thing. Yeah, no, weekend.
0: but it's good to, for uh, uh, folks out there, film buffs, to be able to just to get a taste of what it's what the future's going to be like.
3: <laughs> and we do. But you know what? The best VR experience I, for my money in this town is that Mauna Kea uh, piece at Artists of Hawaii right now at the Honolulu Museum, Nicole Naone, Chris Kahunahana, and, uh, you know, the piece that you did a report yes,
0: on. Yes, yes, no. So folks need to check that out too. <laughs> Thanks so much, Noe. We've been chatting with H.P.R.'s Noe Gawa on a different take on the Hawaii International Film Festival. Look for links on our website later today. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. And guess what? It's Backyard Quiz Time. Onihoa, olehua, Onihao okawa, o oahu, o Molokai, o Lanai, o o Hawaii, In today's Backyard Quiz, we jump into our time machine to take you to the year 1981. Uh, It was when Jim Neighbors' Christmas in Hawaii show aired on television sets in the month of December. This hour long variety show featured performances by actors and singers like Tom Selleck, Carol Burnett, as well as Neighbors himself. The brothers Casimiro and the Honolulu Boys Choir were also featured in supporting roles. When the special aired, it was well-received by viewers, and this led to the release of the show's soundtrack on vinyl, as well as the actual TV special on VHS. Though Christmas in Hawaii was filmed in several recognizable locations in Hawaii, many who have seen it remember neighbors for singing in front of a particular famous memorial here on Oahu. For our quiz, we want you to tell us which memorial served as the backdrop for Jim Neighbor's Christmas in Hawaii. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com
0: Unrelucible beats reality check. Looks at issues the homeless are having when it comes to retrieving their belongings seized during the city sweeps of the illegal encampments. Reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us today. Good morning.
5: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So uh, you know we all know uh, that these these uh, uh, sweeps happen, and a lot of the things that are left behind get hauled away. Uh, But our listeners may not know that you have to go to Halava Valley to retrieve it.
5: Yeah, you do. Uh, And um, I actually live around the Mo'ili'ili neighborhood. So if I were living on the streets, it would take me maybe about 51 minutes by bus, depending on traffic, and then maybe 14 minutes by car. But if I were to take the bus, um, it would be also a 20-minute, maybe 40-minute hike up the hill to um, a storage facility and then going back. So if you have maybe like two cars, two actually large trucks worth of stuff, it'd almost be impossible to get back to the camp where you stay.
0: Wow. So I guess, you know, if you're on the bus, uh, hopefully you don't have a lot of stuff and and you can haul it out. But um, some people have a whole house full of things.
6: They
5: do. So in my story, uh, the couple that I profiled, they actually literally had a house full of stuff. So during that sweep that happened in on Tuesday morning, um, they the city maintenance crews actually hauled in a washing machine. Um, what else? A solar panel, maybe a couple wheelchairs, and then in the end, you get uh, the folks get this. Um, a notice saying where they can pick it up and they give a general sense of how much stuff is taken and then they have to schedule a time and day only on Fridays to pick up their stuff from Halava.
0: And there was some uh, agreement that was reached between the ACLU and the city back when, you know, on making sure that the folks had enough notice that these sweeps were going to happen, right?
5: yes yeah, so i believe that was in um, 2015 i remember the aclu sued the county um for the store property ordinances so back then the city would just do the sweeps throw away their belongings but then after in 2015 um, city officials reached a court sanction agreement where the city agreed that they would um, they would prevent them from um, trashing their belongings so when Well, it's not really called a sweep anymore. It's called sanitation activities Mm -hmm. um, under the Blangiardi administration. So when the maintenance crew and um, HBD come, uh, they give the homeless folks 30 minutes to collect whatever belongings. And depending if they have outstanding warrants, they do get arrested. Or if they have underlying health conditions like Georgette, they're sent to the hospital. And then once the city crew does their thing, they haul it to a place in Kalihi, And then they give that notice full of the items that they seized to the property owner. And if the property owner agrees to um, getting their belongings back, then they ship all of the belongings from Kalihi to Halaba.
0: So that's the only place you can pick it up is at Halaba.
5: Yeah. So the city only has one storage unit on Oahu.
0: And so um, what does the ACLU say? I mean, uh, I know they recently uh, filed a lawsuit uh, on behalf of some homeless people uh, on Maui about um, a sweep or a sanitation, uh, uh, you know, activity there?
5: So for Honolulu specifically, um, the ACLU believes that it's a little bit outdated, but also given that Honolulu County is the only one that has a stored property ordinance that allows us folks to actually gather their belongings, as opposed to Maui, um, they can just do their sweeps and throw away their stuff, mm. especially personal belongings.
0: Wow. So yeah, that that's a that's a little tricky because um, you could lose your documents, you know, your driver's license and, and important papers.
5: Yeah, you can. Um, For Georgette, too, I think one of her, she's actually lost her social security and her um, ID, but has gotten back through um, Hui Aloha, who also is working with uh, the Institute for Human Services.
0: And uh, uh, any word from the city uh, about whether they might make any changes?
5: No word yet, but I will be trying in future stories.
0: Okay, so they didn't reply back, huh, in time for the deadline. No, not yet. All right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, appreciate your time.
5: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's reality check. To read her full story, visit civilbeat.org.
7: Support for The
4: Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School.
8: Need a break in your day? Whether you're in your car, your kitchen, or still in bed... Manu Minute brings you the rich sounds of Hawaii's native forests and shorelines. Learn about the long-legged i'o, the clever alala, and more as we listen to the birds' unique songs and talk to experts about their conservation. Get the Manu Minute delivered to your phone or mobile device. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts.
4: Support for the Aloha Friday conversation comes from Na Mea Hawaii and Native Books Hawaii, dedicated to sharing knowledge of and about Hawaii, its people, culture, and language. Learn more at NaMeaHawaii.com.
0: Daniel Weber first got her feet wet in conservation, working in the native forests of Kauai. But she's forged a path in a much different landscape, a digital one. Weber started Laulima in 2017, an online store and Instagram account that sells patches, pins, and other merchandise that feature native flora and fauna. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Poet spoke with Weber about how she came to art as a tool for conservation.
9: That's a funny one because I have no formal training in art. I have always just done art for fun, and back in 2017, when Lalima started, a friend of mine who does art on the side, but she's also a conservation biologist, um, we would just get together and do art, and we thought of the idea of using art as conservation outreach to kind of raise awareness about endangered species. So we put together this art show with um, artists from O'ahu, and it was called the Endangered Art. And there was great public support. A lot of people showed up, and we were able to raise money for conservation. And we just enjoyed it so much that we decided to turn this sort of into an art collective. But uh, my friend, she actually moved away to go to graduate school, and it was just me. And I decided to keep the momentum going and it kind of evolved into Laulima.
8: An art collective of one.
9: <laughs> yes, yeah. And so uh, what I try to do is uh, I find local artists who are very inspiring and into native species and will do collaborations on, uh, like we'll make different pins of different
8: species. Mm. When you think about Laulima and you think about its goals in conservation, do you think that your primary goal is to raise more money to give back to conservation efforts or to raise more awareness about what native flora and fauna actually look like in Hawaii?
9: First and foremost, my goal is to raise awareness of native Hawaiian species and educate about conservation. After that, I like a perk of all of this is raising money for conservation here in Hawaii. And another goal of mine is to repair these images of Hawaii that have been perpetuated by tourism and the media of things that are not actually belonging to Hawaii.
8: Can you give an example maybe of a planter animal that has become synonymous with Hawaii that maybe even might be detrimental to our ecosystem here?
9: Yes, definitely. Okay, so there's this thing that I like to tell people to do. Um, If you Google Hawaiian plant, you are going to find a bunch of pictures of plants that don't belong in Hawaii. And I find it, I personally find it kind of hilarious and also a little disheartening. But uh, many of the plants that people associate with Hawaii were imported by developers because our native vegetation had been cleared. And a lot of these plants end up being invasive, which is detrimental to our native ecosystems because they kind of take over and they compete with our native plants. One big one is Monstera. This one gets a lot of, uh, a lot of attention because it's a big, pretty plant. But Monstera is actually from Central and South America, not native to Hawaii, and it does no good for our ecosystems. One that is very invasive is Strawberry Guava. I do think a lot of people have awareness that strawberry guava is invasive, but um, some people don't realize, like, when you see it on trails, that's not a plant that's supposed to be there. It creates so many seeds per plant, and our native birds love to eat the fruit, which means that these birds are spreading all the strawberry guava seeds around and further damaging our native forests.
8: In La Lima, have you had any epiphanies or interactions with people where they'd say, I, I would never have known that this was a native species or I've never necessarily seen this species in any media depicted about Hawaii?
9: This happens all the time. Um, <laughs> I always try to indoctrinate uh, my nieces and nephews into caring about native plants. It's so funny how many times I'll mention a native plant to a family member and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so this is a big problem, and this is kind of what my goal with La Lima is: is to just um, remove this like disconnect that we have with the natural world around us, and to uh, start building relationships with native species that are in our backyard.
8: You've worked you've worked with many artists in the past who are also interested in native species and cultivating spaces for native species, both in the art world and also in the landscape of tourism. Are there any other particular mm-hmm. initiatives who you feel like you're working with that you'd like to highlight? Um, like any other initiatives? Or artists or people who have also sure. contributed to this work?
9: Um, I would I would point people toward the direction of uh, plantpono.org. It's not necessarily... Um, an art initiative, but it does great uh, It does great work to try to introduce people to plants that you can put around your home that are
8: safe and have a low invasive species risk. What is the vision for La Lima moving forward?
9: Well, I think first and foremost, it's good to address the local community and help them build those relationships first. Um, and then in the background, a good benefit would be to reach out to the tourism industry and help them uh, repair those images and replace images of like non-native plants with what actually is native to Hawaii. But I would say I've been focusing on helping people here in Hawaii learn about the native flora and fauna and build those relationships first before bringing it to the forefront of tourism.
8: And then how do you choose which initiatives in conservation to support with the funds from Laulima?
9: Well, actually, a lot of them have been nonprofits that I either worked for or have volunteered with. So, uh, La Lima started in 2017, and since it started, we have donated to 17 different conservation nonprofits throughout Hawaii. Uh, this includes Mauna Kea Forest Restoration Project, Hawaii Wildlife Center, and Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project. And these are all different nonprofits that work with a, a with different native species, and so I try to diversify where these funds go to try to support a bunch of different efforts that are happening throughout the islands. And I also try to actively engage in community fundraising efforts so uh, we can support causes beyond just conservation, so like donating to fundraisers for like food sovereignty or education or um, like protection from overdevelopment.
8: What's the next species that Laulima is going to be featuring in its stores?
9: Uh, the next species design will be an Aki which is that little Hawaiian honeycreeper that lives on Kauai that I have a very special relationship with. My career in conservation started with an internship with Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project. We were working with three critically endangered species of birds that are only found in the forests of Kauai. And two of these birds, the Aki-Kiki and aki are likely to go extinct in the next 5 to 10 years, sadly.
8: There was news recently about the aki One of its populations has declined dramatically. Is that correct?
9: That is true, yes. Um, I believe it's over 90% uh of the population has gone down in the last decade or so.
8: Looking both as someone who is engaged in awareness about conservation, but someone who has also participated in on-the-ground conservation efforts, what do you think is the best case scenario for the future of the conservation movement in Hawaii?
9: What I really imagine for the future of conservation in Hawaii is increased stewardship. I hope that people can build deeper relationships to places With each other and with native species so we can collectively aloha aina and i think we can expand this knowledge to educate others about native species and just raise awareness about native species in general and help each other understand what's happening to our delicate ecosystems here in hawaii i mean i hear all the time uh i got into native plants because of you or uh like you got me interested in conservation i just found your account online and that started it all and to me I like I have a really hard time believing that because it's just like it's so inspiring and heartwarming and it's just like how how did I make such an impact with an Instagram account it's weird but I'm really happy that it people are interested and that's what keeps me going is people's engagement um otherwise I'm just like yeah, it's social media. It's not something I enjoy, but I keep coming back to this account because of the impact it has and the way I can engage with the community.
0: That was Savannah Herman pope speaking with Daniel Weber, owner of the online store Lima. And that new pin she was talking about will be coming out soon. We will have links to Lima's website at hawaiipublicradio.org. The word
10: Lima. L-A-U-L-I-M-A I said
0: You know, our two recent call shows about what to do with the Aloha Stadium site continues to strike a chord with our listeners. Here are a couple of voicemails we received recently on our Talk back line.
7: My name is Todd from Mo'ili'ili it's been great to attend the football game on the UH Manoa campus. I've been waiting as an alum for 30 years to do that, and I didn't have any trouble getting to the stadium. I walked and beeked. But my real concern is the demand for anything larger than the existing Ching 9,000-seat stadium. I'm not sure it's there. For example, I had an extra ticket for sale on a 20-yard line, $85 ticket uh, retail, but I couldn't even sell it for $5 two weekends ago. So I guess the question is: Is there really demand for much larger facility? I think not. But any future facility should be multi-use. There should be parking underneath it, housing, rail station, retail, whatever. It should be like a ripongi district facility versus just asterturf on ground. So it's got to really be akamai, and and that lower campus quarry area really needs to be programmed for the highest and best use for the neighborhoods, the area around it, for the university students and the state taxpayers. Mahalo. Thank you.
10: Aloha. This is Sheldon. I heard your uh, program this morning um, about um, the stadium and so on. The people being interviewed were people who apparently have a wide open tunnel into their wallet if, if their plan is chosen. Um, and nobody spoke up for um, the, the wise old man, namely the three governors uh, of a week ago. Um, nobody stuck up for their point of view, and nobody seems to have stuck up for the point of view of those who are going to be deprived of uh, affordable housing. Those are the ones that are leaving Oahu in droves because they can't afford to live there, and, and housing is the reason. seems to me housing ought to be the, the, the main focus of, of this conversation ongoing. Thank you for listening. Aloha.
0: And thank you, Todd and Sheldon. We do welcome comments uh, about our stories from our listeners. You can leave a voicemail on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, early in the program, we remembered Jim Neighbors' Christmas in Hawaii show, which originally aired in December of 81. The hour-long variety show featured performances by Neighbors, Tom Sella, Cal Burnett, among others. The Brothers Merrill and the Honolulu Boys Choir also joined in on the fun. Following the original airing, the response from viewers was so positive that later the soundtrack of Christmas in Hawaii was released on vinyl. Though there are several locales featured in the special, many viewers cited Neighbors' performances in front of a famous memorial on Oahu as making the biggest impact. We asked you to name that famous memorial that was prominently seen, as Jim Neighbor sang in some parts of the show, Christmas in Hawaii, and the answer is the USS Arizona Memorial. Congrats to uh, Larka from Kapolei. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
7: 2,000 American men lost their lives at Pearl Harbor, and what remains here today is a monument built over those men's underwater graves and a memory of their valor. Silent
4: night, holy night. Support for HPR comes from Mutual Publishing in Hawaii, publishing local cookbooks, children's books, history, and more. Their Kaimuki Bookstore is open Monday to Friday, 9 to 4.30, also online at mutualpublishing.com.
0: Back when HBR was an idea starting to take hold, our founders chose to incorporate us as an independent, non-commercial service, a community-owned radio station without ties to any other institution. That fundamental decision from 1981 has had lasting impact. It keeps us free from outside influence in our programming and how we run the organization. Forty years of Hawaii Public Radio made possible by you. Thanks for believing. You know, this week, Douglas' fir Christmas trees, and wreaths hit the stores. Catch a whiff of the fragrant pine, and yes, it's a familiar scent. But you may not be familiar with the story of the Scottish botanist who's credited with discovering the species. Did you know David Douglas is buried here in Hawaii? Just imagine how exotic our tropical rainforest and rare species might have appeared to him. David Douglas actually died on the Big Island after falling into a pit where he was gored and trampled by a bull. A rock monument at Mauna Kea marks the area where he died. Back in the day, there was speculation about whether he was pushed or if he accidentally fell into that pit. He is buried at Kaua'i Ha'o Church. But don't look for his tombstone in the churchyard. The weathered marble marker occupies a space in the vestibule. It's just to the right as you enter the front doors of the church. Over the years, fellow Scots with bagpipes in tow have been known to pay tribute to the botanist at Kauai. His tombstone reads: "Here lies Master David Douglas, born in Scotland in 1799, sent out by the Royal Horticultural Society of London, gave his life for science in the wilds of Hawaii, July 12, 1834. Aaron, here the tear of pity springs and hearts are touched by human things." There's a bronze plaque beneath the tombstone because the inscription is so worn. It says the Royal Horticulture Society, grateful for his services to horticulture and botany, caused this crumbling inscription to the memory of David Douglas to be recorded in 1920. Cemetery historian Nanette Napoleon met me at the site the other day to share Douglas's story. First time I came
6: across the story of David Douglas was I was doing research on something else and I found a a map of Mauna Kea, really not a very good map, but it had an X on the map and it said David Douglas death place or something like that and I go, what, who's who's buried way in a remote place? So then I started collecting information about him and his story and the more I read the more I got interested in his story, Who, who was he and then I found out he was a famous botanist from England. And then I read it, well, he came here to Hawaii several times, and, and he ended up dying on Mauna Kea. I said, wow, what a fascinating story. So I started collecting, like I do, I like great files, and I collect more and more information. And then a researcher for the David Douglas Society contacted me, because at the time I was doing freelance research for other people about anything to do with Hawaii. So he found out who I was, and he called me and said he's going to be in Hawaii, and did I know anything about David Douglas and would I help him do some research here because he couldn't stay long enough. He hired me and then this whole story came to fore and I've been interested
0: in it ever since. Explain how even though David Douglas died at Mauna Kea, his remains were brought here to Honolulu. That's That's an interesting story about how his body
6: came to be here. So he dies way up in the boonies in Mana and there happened to have been some Hawaiian hunters up there at the same time that he died and they came across his body and they carried him out of there and they went down the coastline to where their canoe was and they put him in the canoe and rowed all the way to Hilo where they reported it to the two missionaries that were stationed in Hilo at the time. So here they have his body but for some reason they decided not to bury him on the island. So. <laughs> Here's a kind of bizarre thing they did. They got a big water cask, barrel, a big barrel. They put brine water inside and they put his body in the brine water, in the cask. And then they put it on a ship and it came to Honolulu. There were doctors here and they uh, trying to figure out what was the cause of death and things like that. And he had severe injuries to his head and his, his whole body from the trampling of the bull. Yeah, they brought him here, and there was a big investigation about it, and all kind of people—government people and British people—they were all trying to figure out what happened. So I thought it was pretty interesting they, how they got him from Hilo to Honolulu in this cask of brine water, and then he was brought here and, and buried, buried at Koihau Cemetery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then over time, the marker became really deteriorated, just like we're looking at it right now. You can see, because it's real thin marble, so his marker deteriorated, and then, because he was somebody of note in the world, and then, you know, decided to bring in marker in here. But he's buried outside somewhere, but Kaua Church doesn't have a record of where he was originally buried. He's not buried in this vestibule anywhere. So it's still a mystery. The mystery continues. Okay. mystery of how he died. And now the mystery of where his remains are out there. But it's nice that they saved the plaque here, although it's a little hard to read because it's so deteriorated. And there is a transcription. Even though I've written stories and comes out in the newspaper and there's been stories in the magazine, local magazines and things like that, if you have the average citizen on the street, they have no idea. They never heard of the guy. So it's great that there is something physical to remember
0: him by, and so as people go out there and buy their Doug fir Christmas trees, because <laughs> they've already arrived on it. Yeah, and, and nobody knows that <laughs> that the Douglas fir
6: is named after him or Christmas trees. You know. Yeah. And do we know what type of research he did? Oh, he his in-depth knowledge of botany was tremendous. He studied every kind of plant there was, practically. There's different varieties and different fir trees. So he, he had did this big study on fir trees, and his research was extensive. And, you know, here he is just by himself. He didn't come with anybody to the islands. It was just him. And besides being interested in plants, he was also interested in astronomy and other sciences. So when he was here, he studied all kinds of other things here because it was new. He was brand new to, what you know, it was exciting uh, to exciting be able to for see him this, to see this different kind of biology all around him, and in the Pacific Ocean. So he studied a lot, and and he has an extensive collection in uh, Scotland. And so the Scottish people in Hawaii they honor him, and some members have gone up to see his cairn, which is a rock monument shaped like a pyramid. People years later it was like a hundred years later people came and put the cairn in you know, over there, and and a beautiful Bronze plaque on it telling his story and everything. I went there one year with the guy from Scotland and photographer from here, and it was really really interesting. It's in the middle of the boonies, and at the time there was a little tiny sign. It was hard to even figure out where he was. But now they have a state of Hawaii HVB sign up there, a marker. Maybe Douglas this way <laughs> on the road because you could easily miss it because it's in the middle of the forest and there's no trail. So the time I went, we were climbing over logs and crossing a the river, and, but it was worth it. It was, It's a beautiful monument, but not too many people know how to get there. <laughs> well, I'm told it's off the
0: Belt Highway, and it's not too yeah. high up. So it's like around 7,000-foot level or somewhere. It took know. about less than an hour. Anything else? I mean, there's just a little bit of, you know, hidden history here in Hawaii that maybe is just worth remembering uh, or learning about during the yeah. holidays just because everybody is out there looking for you yeah, know dug yeah. fir trees because of right. the wonderful right. scent. Right. Yeah, so the takeaway for you listeners
6: is you can now say you know who <laughs> the Douglas fir was named after and he was a guy that came all the way out here on his own and well he, actually he was sponsored by the Royal Botanical Society of England, which is the highest, most prestigious biological institution, not only in Great Britain, but one of the top in the whole world. So for him to have come out here representing that organization was important, important scientific expedition of one. Usually people come out on expeditions with a group of people, right? So you know what he did was, because he didn't have other people with him from where his homeland, he hired Hawaiians to be his carriers his supply carriers. So quite a few of them he had. So as he collected specimens and yes. they helped to... Yes, yes. They helped him collect specimens. It. He even taught them how to lay out the specimen and help him, because he had to pack everything and, and he helped him pack it into these, these containers that the specimens had to go in. So Hawaiians learned a little bit of botany along the way. But he... He said said in his diary, one of his diaries says, the Hawaiians are clamoring for more poi. They tried to tell him to bring more poi, but he didn't listen to us and we're we're out of poi.
0: So they made a special runner go back and get poi. That's a great (laughs) story. Yeah. This is while he was going island to island collecting all the specimens. Right. Right, right. And so the specimens that he did collect then, are they back in London? Are yeah, are any of them here at the uh, Bishop uh, Museum? No, there's no none here. In, none of his original papers are here. And there you have it. That was cemetery historian Annette Napoleon talking about Scottish botanist David Douglas, who is credited with discovering the Douglas fir Christmas tree species. So now you know the story. Think of Douglas the next time the next time you see the fragrant fir trees and wreaths on sale this holiday season. And that's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, it's Hana Ho on Monday. We take you to Waikiki as we prepare for more visitors to return to the resort district. Call our Talkback line to share your Waikiki memories. 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Our show is produced by Savannah heron Pope. Russell SubiONO and Lillian Song. Backyard Quiz, written by John DeMello, and our theme music, thanks to Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.